Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name's Rob Woods and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants some ideas and maybe a little dose of inspiration to help you raise more money and enjoy your job, especially during the pandemic. And if you work in major donor fundraising, I hope you're going to find today's episode really helpful because it's once again with the fabulous Louise Morris of Summit Fundraising. A little while ago, Louise and I created a learning bundle for my training and inspiration site, the Bright Spot Members Club, all about how to develop better, more respectful and deeper relationships with major donors. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you may remember that in a couple of earlier episodes, I've shared excerpts of Louise explaining how to succeed in the first three parts of her model, that is to be curious, to pause and to connect. And we got such lovely feedback from those early episodes that we thought we'd share just one more. In this one, which is a section from towards the end of our full conversation, we explore the last two elements of Louise's model. And just before we finish, we also squeeze in some quick fire questions to help you understand Louise's approach. In terms of keeping it moving through your model, Louise, uh, some people would say call the next step ask. And I don't, I don't have a problem if sometimes as a shorthand, we talk about asking in charities because everyone knows where they stand. But I really do like the fact that in your model, when possible, the more you can call it an offer, not an ask, the more helpful will, that will be. Would you say a bit more about that step uh, and then move into some tactics, practically speaking, to help the listener actually do it? Yeah, I think asking is just filled with all kinds of um, negative emotions. And you know, there's a lot of research that suggests this in fundraising. So if people are worried about asking, I've been there, it's really very common. And the reason I want us to start talking about offering is because it's linking back to how good giving is for people and how you're giving somebody the opportunity to make a massive difference. So if we remember that the charity is just in the middle and what you're linking is a philanthropist, a major donor, a high net worth individual with being able to, you know, potentially make a huge difference that they can't do elsewhere in their life. So when you're asking, the onus is on you, I very much feel, as a fundraiser. And there's just so much that is mythical about, you know, asking, you know, that big ask meeting that we build ourselves up for and there's this long process and it's all building up to the ask, which, you know, frankly, however many times you've asked, if you're thinking about it like that, it's kind of terrifying, really. (laughs) Whereas if we think that we're offering somebody the opportunity to give, it takes it away from asking for money and grabbing. You know, we're not going with a begging bowl for our organisations. We're offering someone the opportunity to make a really big difference. And you'll already have been demonstrating that to them. You'll already have connected to them. So you'll know which part of your work or why they want to make a difference and you can connect it. And it's good for them to be giving. And I think if there's, you know, one kind of thing that you can do to kind of get more comfortable with this offer and really thinking that offering people the chance to give is good. It's to, you know, read more from philanthropists. So Beth Breeze's work is fascinating because she's interviewed so many um, high net worth individuals about their giving and her book's called Richer Lives. It's one of her books. And it's just absolutely fascinating. And I think the interesting thing for me is you can build up all of these connections and you can really understand somebody. People still need to be asked. The research that Dr. Beth Fries has done shows that the number one reason people give is because they're asked or offered the opportunity to give. So it's kind of 
can be thought of as a necessarily evil. Well, we've done all this lovely relationship building and, oh God, now we've got to make an ask. Or now it can be a case of actually, now we're giving somebody the opportunity to do what I know they love or I really think from what I've heard they're hugely interested in. And it changes the balance of power quite a lot. And a lot of the time, some of the problems that have come out in my coaching and my work with charities is, you know, I've heard from trustees that they don't feel comfortable asking for another gift when someone's already given. So they've already given, it feels really uncomfortable. You know, I've heard from CEOs that, you know, that it's, it, they just, frankly, they don't want to do it. It feels really, really hard asking for money. Offering someone the opportunity to give for me doesn't feel as difficult. And a few kind of approaches or mindset that I think is really important in this area is one that some people will say no and that that is okay. Some people won't want the chance to give. You can offer it because if somebody offers the chance for me to go around for dinner or go to the pub, I'm not necessarily going to say yes. I don't have to. That's my choice. And the more um, you read about philanthropists, I think it's respecting that choice and understanding that it is a choice just because we maybe again, you know, terminology, I don't like have them in our sights or they were a key prospect. It doesn't mean that they want to give. And that is okay. So if we can be realistic, that not everybody is going to say yes, that we're not going to get our 100% success rate. It then doesn't feel like a failure if somebody says no, um, or actually I need to go and think about that. Or I'm really not sure. Um, Because the second, I suppose, mindset or approach with offering is that if somebody doesn't want to take you up on that offer and doesn't want to give to the charity at that time it's not necessarily a negative and Paul Davies who was on the Bright Spot Mastery program is a really good example of this because we had a wonderful session where he was talking um, about potential asks coming up so in the same week that he secured the largest gift for his charity he also had a no from a couple and it was fascinating when we were talking about it because he said that kind of having thought even in advance that that was a possibility made that conversation easier so he was being realistic that it's not necessarily everyone's going to say yes. He thought ahead and thought ahead to the different options of somebody might say, no, not now. Somebody might say, I need to go and think about it. Somebody might say, I might need a bit more information. But interestingly, the no that he had was not negative at all. It was fascinating. So if you're in your black and white, I need money, again, get, get, get mindset, you can come out of a meeting where somebody may be you know, hasn't immediately said yes, which of us is very rare and think, oh, you can feel really deflated and you can just feel exhausted by it. And you can feel like you failed, like you haven't got what your organization needs, which is money. The no that Paul spoke about was fascinating to me because it was a couple who were actually putting a lot of money into their business that year. And they said, we're not going to be able to give a larger gift at the moment, but we're really hoping our business new venture is going to do really well. So let's chat next year. I mean, he could end up with an even larger gift. Now, this isn't to take away from the realities of targets. I know they're there. And that's a whole other kind of um, kettle of fish in terms of what we measure success on as, as major gift fundraisers. But I think if we can assume that some people will say no and just get comfortable with that, because the best fundraisers are okay with rejection or they don't even see it as rejection it's choice and we need to respect that with our donors and we need to bring that language back that actually oh my gosh you know I've had a terrible meeting they didn't give actually they've chosen this year to give to another organization or they've chosen this year to invest in their business 
But what we're going to do is keep that relationship up. And so, Louise, practically speaking, in, the mindset really is the most important bit, I think, and the confidence and having the right intention. But have you found that there are any tactics or tools that can help when you're actually doing it? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think I've been um, coaching a number of fundraisers and leaders who are asking on considering whether they might want to use a gift pyramid. Um, Some people might be familiar with a gift pyramid for an appeal. So it is a pyramid and it's normally got one larger gift at the top. So if, for example, you're going to want to raise a million pounds, you might be looking for one gift of 300,000 to 500,000. And it goes down the pyramid into more um, at lower value gifts. Now, the reason this is quite an interesting one is because what I found working with over 100 charities is a lot of the time people don't know how much to ask for. And the how much is a really big sticking point. And it comes back to this, oh, we need to do loads and loads of research on this prospect and takes away from that curiosity. How rich are they? You know, could they give a six figure? Could they give them, oh, I need it for my budgeting line. And this this kind of talking about the amount can actually be quite paralyzing. It can either cause like people to not want to ask or not want to get to a stage where they ask, or it can really stop us in a meeting having those kind of quality conversations. The thing I like about sometimes using a pyramid is you don't have to have a specific appeal. It could be your budget for the year. And you can say, you know, for for our charity, we're hoping to raise £200,000 this year from, you know, key supporters like yourselves. We think to raise this money, this is what it might look like. And you can put it down in front of you. Um, it makes it quite collaborative. Obviously, if you're on Zoom or video, you can you can do an equivalent. But if you're face-to-face, you can both be looking at something, which is really quite nice. And if you're nervous as a fundraiser, and a lot of us are, are asking for money, if you're nervous, it kind of takes some of that you must look into the whites of their eyes and ask for a really big gift. You know, it can just take that pressure off a little bit. Um, so it feels less confrontational. You are offering. You're saying, this is how we think we might raise the money. What do you think? You know, would you like to contribute at any of these levels? Often you don't even have to get to that stage. So a fundraiser I was coaching recently used it and said, oh, they just pointed at the amount that they wanted to give. And, and a lady said, a high net worth individual, I can't give it that level, but I'd like to give it this level, which was higher than her previous gift. So it takes some of the awkwardness of the amount. There are obviously other ways, you know, to, to do it. And I've seen some really good fundraising happen with different ask levels in a proposal when somebody's when someone's actually asked for a written proposal and they put different levels in. Um, but, you know, I've used it with... Um, a chair of an appeal board when we were actually talking about the appeal and he was hopefully going to give a lead gift and it was the perfect scenario to do it in because it was bringing the appeal and it together but you don't have to have an appeal to use it and again he he identified himself and said you know me and my wife were going to give at that level and pointed at it and for me it can be quite reassuring to have that as a tool or to have it there if you feel you want to use it to help with an amount Fantastic. So we don't have to use it, but it is an option. And do you just briefly, do you have any tips for how the staring at those numbers might undo all the good we did earlier of offering them a chance to solve a problem in the world that they care about? In that moment, they're staring at £5,000 or £10,000. Any tips for for how to, or or maybe you, you haven't noticed that that 
that uh, the, the two are uh, inconsistent. Yeah, I think you're completely right in that, you know, we've spent a lot of this, <laughs> our conversation talking about how donors give to change the world and to make a difference. So you don't want to take away from that. Um, I think it's in the context of a conversation. A lot of what we've been discussing is conversations, natural conversations. And so you may have been having conversation in a previous meeting and talking to them about the latest project you were doing and how many people it's helped and a lovely story that's really stuck with you, even if it's a brief story, the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. But at some point, you are going to need to give them the opportunity to give if you know that from all of those lovely conversations you've had. And so I think sometimes that gets built up into people's minds. And maybe for some fundraisers I've worked with, they know they've got a tool that helps them sell, tell the stories better in maybe that part of the meeting. But, you know, hopefully you will have told... A, Donors don't like big surprises. They don't want to be told that, you know, you're going to get their opinion on something and then an ask sneaked up on them at the end, you know, to set up the meeting to say, you know, I would, you know, I'd love to meet with you to see how you might want to get more involved or how you might want to support the charity. They'll be expecting it. And you can't take away from the fact that figures and money are involved at some point. I think what you can do with all those, you know, lovely techniques of storytelling um, and, you know, knowing what really motivates them you can link the two and you can just link that you know because okay a gift at that level is going to help x many more people and do you remember me telling you about you know the child that our charity helped last month and what that meant etc 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 so i think you can link the two um and it shouldn't take away from all that connecting about why they're giving and and what they're doing in the previous stage it's not and i think if it if it does, it, it makes it too transactional. So it's more of an aid rather than a whoop, there you go, here's the gift pyramid. Hi, it's Rob, and I just want to jump in really quickly to let you know about our three flagship mastery programs in major donor fundraising, in corporate partnerships, and in individual giving. These six month courses are a combination of masterclasses and one-to-one -one coaching with expert coaches such as Louise to help fundraising professionals grow their confidence and their income. To give you a sense of the difference that these programs can make, here's what one fundraiser, Sarah Davies, said about how Major Gift Mastery helped her. I've just finished Rob Wood's Major Gift Mastery programme and it's been amazing. Um, the last six months of doing this course, I've had the most successful time in my job to date. I've had three or four major breakthroughs and my confidence has increased and it's no coincidence. I know this course has helped massively. Also, my colleague who works with me has been doing this course as well and she's had the best six months in her career as well. Again, major breakthroughs and I really encourage you, if you can find the budget within your organization to apply for this if you'd like to find out more go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services for now though let's get back to my conversation with louise as i ask her to explain the last element in her model so louise across this conversation you took us through curious well be curious step two pause step three connect offer and what was the fifth step in your model? It's to go deeper with relationships. And this comes from a bit of a bugbear I spoke about previously with you, which is that on to the next ask they've given, we'll send them a thank you card. It's 
not respectful. I understand why it happens, particularly, you know, I've thought about it in those terms before because I've had this, this circle of steps that kind of comes back round. Um, and I'm not saying everybody does this because as a sector, we do beautiful personal thanking. What I don't, what I think we can do more of is the amount of it and how personal it is and how we're really understanding what that person wants to get from their giving. So all of those, this isn't a linear this isn't a linear process at all. Um, all of that curiosity and understanding your donor and what they're interested in works here. How can you deepen the connection? Um, so one of a younger philanthropist in his 40s I was interviewing was um, had already given a large gift and was talking about his family and how they were setting up a new trust fund. And he wanted his children to be part of that, which is very common for younger donors because he felt it was really important to their values. They were very lucky financially. He wanted them to start giving at a really young age. Now, all of a sudden, I'm thinking, well, this charity, it, instead of inviting him to some kind of swanky black tie event in the evening, actually, what about that family day? Or, you know, you're, you're thinking and you get to know people over time. It's not a stage where you get to know someone. You get to know them over time. And that should just be constant and help inform kind of how you involve people. So for example, that charity now is approaching him very much as a family. Um, and he even said to me, you know, I know I get invited to these evening things and I should want to go because I'm relatively young, but I really just want to put my feet up in the sofa with my wife and just, you know, chill out with the kids. So, you know, you understand people more. It's not a one-off. You don't have one meeting to be curious and find out about them. And there's some fascinating research by Adrian Sargent and Jen Shang, which goes across all donors, which is if you thank people four or more times in a year, it makes them more likely to give and for longer. And you think mm, four times. Well, I can't send a thank you card at Christmas. Could I? Is it a bit OTT? But this is about understanding someone and how they're going to be thanked. So, you know, maybe you'll send if it's, you know, a little video message from the CEO, say, you know, thanks so much for your gift. Maybe it is a handwritten thank you card at Christmas, but it's really personal. Um, I've heard of fundraiser writing a poem to thank a donor because the donor was hugely interested in poetry, which I just thought was wonderful. I've heard of faking um, and being taken around, probably not appropriate in pandemic times. But I think it's the small touches that say, and not to be afraid to repeatedly thank throughout a year for somebody's gift. They, haven't, they might have given a three-year pledge. And it's not a case of, okay, we're going to wait for the next one to come in and invite them to an event. It's letting them know the difference that is making throughout the year in different ways that you know the donor's going to like because you know them best from all those conversations. And it yeah. might be a formal report because that might be what they want. Um, and a donor said to me when I interviewed a philanthropist the other month, you know, I'm really into the facts and figures. I don't need a massive pat on the back. That's not what I like. That's not why I give. And it was interesting to hear that. That doesn't mean you can't thank and thank in a way that's authentic and genuine and that he would like. You might want to give him the latest stats and facts on a project and say, you know, I thought you might want to know that X many more people have been helped this year. Thank you so much. That could be like eight months after a gift's been made. And I think if we can see it as a constant, it just deepens those relationships. And it means that you keep the relationship up so you know when it's the right time to potentially offer for them to be involved again or to say to them to have that conversation. It's just easier to have the conversation about when they might give again. Yes. So this, this is not the same grateful paragraph cut and pasted sent four different times across the year. What I'm hearing is 
in various ways, if we can give people a sense of the difference it's making, and that might be a little one minute film from the project manager of the project, or it might occasionally be even be a, a card drawn by someone or a letter of someone potentially who benefited from it, or it might be something from the chief executive. So in a variety of different styles and formats, we're showing the difference it's making and inevitably we're using a thank you in there, but the substance there rather than saying the same grateful message four times. Absolutely. And it links to when we were talking about pausing and ideas as well, and that some funders I've spoken to have had some really innovative ideas whilst they're doing something else. So again, this isn't linear. It isn't just a process. It's more um, an approach because, you know, we should care about our donors. We might not we don't have to like them as best friends, but we need a relationship and we should care about them and what they're interested in. And if we can show that, they will be donors for life. And we have an opportunity to create that connection. We have an opportunity to introduce them to other donors to create that kind of real sense of community. And yeah, you can only do that if time is spent on this. And often we don't allow ourselves, we either don't resource it, we don't allow ourselves as fundraisers to spend time on this because we've got this, you know, big target over our heads. But this actually makes more financial sense to do and that will raise more money anyway. But it doesn't always feel like that. And it's a really, you know, when I when I work with fundraisers, this is what fundraisers are good at. This is what they love doing. Um, and building those relationships is why a lot of people work in fundraising. So yeah, it's, it's good to have permission to do something that we love doing. Mm, absolutely. Louise, just before we go, thank you so much for talking us through your model and giving us lots of advice, lots of examples. If you've got five more minutes, I'd just like to, to try out uh, a few of these quickfire questions I ask to, to guest interviewees when I can. So if you're up for that, my first question is, in the last five years, has there been a new belief, habit or behaviour that has most helped you in your job? I think the more major donors and philanthropists I speak to and the more I read, it's just that giving is an amazing thing. Um, I wish I'd have known that when I was 24 and started fundraising, but maybe it's something that, you know, grows over time. But yeah, um, it's just inspiring. It's why I love getting out of bed every morning is that it's a very unique thing that we do as fundraisers and to give people that opportunity and it's really inspiring speaking to people and hearing about people giving large gifts to charities it's yeah it's awesome uh question two if metaphorically speaking you could have a giant billboard which all fundraisers or charities would see what would it say and why speak to your donors don't email them next question is there a book that you found especially interesting or helpful or influential to your thinking or to your career? Yes, Dr. Beth Bree's Richer Lives, Why Rich People Give. Um, particularly if you're earlier on in your career and maybe you haven't met that many major donors, just that those kind of quotes and experiences and just perspectives from wealthy people um, just started me off on an insight into a world that I didn't know that much about. And there's no reason why you should. So I would just really recommend reading it. Yeah, it can really speed up that learning curve and understanding curve without having to have had all those meetings. Uh, next question. What failure or seeming failure in a way helped set you up for later success? I think... I always wanted, as director of fundraising, when I was at Working Hospice, I never spent as much time externally as I wanted to. 
I found that, you know, we talked about kind of making your own role and I found it incredibly challenging. And I've also talked um, in our conversation about having a coach and reading a book called Time to Think by Nancy Klein. And I think that kind of stress and pressure that I had was actually probably a really good learning experience for me. One, because I feel like I really know what it's like (laughs) and I've had a lot of the challenges working with trustees and it's just set me up for a greater understanding. And two, because then I decided to really focus and specialize on what I'm really good at and what I love, which is the relationship side of major donor fundraising and helping fundraisers raise more. So probably that. Thank you. What advice would you give to someone who's really determined and who's just entered the fundraising profession? Fight for investment in your personal development. When I worked at Unilever, I was sent on all sorts of training, negotiation, sales. And I was kind of shocked when I came over to the sector that, you know, I'd never done any fundraising before and there wasn't, I wasn't really sent on anything. And I thought, oh, maybe just is the way it is. No, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, it's really important. You know, we need to invest in our fundraisers um, and that's on the job training, but that's also mentoring, coaching, and there's lots of free schemes as well if your, you know, charity doesn't have, um, but I think we need that. And particularly whether you've come from inside the sector or outside the sector, you need to make a case for it. It doesn't mean you're not a good fundraiser. It means you're a really strong person that wants to do the best that you can do. In the last five years, have you got better at saying no to distractions? And if so, do you have any tips for improving this really important skill? Um yeah, well, a lot of the tips I got from you, Rob, and Brightspot, close, just basic ones, closing emails and not allowing people to think that they will get an instant response. If you always reply instantly to emails, everybody always expects you to reply instantly to emails. So, yeah, knowing that actually replying within 24 hours is fine. For, that, for maybe for some major donors, I would like to add that might not be if you know them well, but certainly internally. Um, and bullet journaling. Um, so I start kind of, um, I have my priorities for each day in work and outside of work, and that helps hugely. And I make them really achievable so that I can actually complete a day and feel like I've achieved something. Um, and that will include stuff with the kids or bike ride and other stuff as well. Thank you. And assuming that you sometimes have tough days like the rest of us, Louise, what do you tend to do to handle the stress and bounce back? I cycle. When I can, and I will try and plan it in. If I know I've got a long day or a tough day or I'll be working late, um, I've actually sometimes done it in between meetings. The one before can't be a Zoom when I'm in my cycling gear. But, yeah, I found that's been just massive help to me just to have that outside space and be in the countryside in the pandemic and when we couldn't do anything else that was my one savior to get out of the house so i feel a bit emotionally connected to my cycling now yeah exercise makes such a difference when when we can fit that habit in especially if we can fit it in proactively so louise thank you so much for all your time and sharing your wisdom if the listener is curious about finding out more of your ideas Uh, or potentially seeking your help, uh, where could they go to find you? They can go to summitfundraising.co.uk. I'm also a rock climber, hence Summit Fundraising. And I send out free hints and tips um, on there every fortnight, so they can go and sign up if they'd like to get those. And I'm on Twitter at Summit Fundraise and on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. So, Louise, thank you so much for all the... A frank discussion, really simple, clear, 
ideas and advice, um, examples to bring it to life. I, I really appreciate you taking time to join us on the podcast. I look forward to catching up with you soon. But for now, Louise Morris, thank you and goodbye. Thanks, Rob. So there you have it. I hope you found our discussion was helpful. If so, I'd be incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to share it on with your colleagues or on social media so that we can get this free content out to help as many charities as possible. Thank you very much for your help. As usual, I'll put a summary and a transcript of the interview on the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. As I mentioned earlier, Louise is one of the hugely experienced coaches who helps participants on our Major Gifts Mastery Programme. And she also joins us as one of the guest experts on the problem-solving sessions that we arrange in our Brightspot Members Club. If you'd like to find out more about either this club or our mastery programs in major gifts, in individual giving or corporate partnerships, head on over to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. And if you'd like to get in touch or share this episode on social media, we would love to hear from you. We're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Louise is at Summit Fundraise and I am at Woods underscore Rob. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. And I look forward to sharing more Bright Spot examples and ideas with you very soon. Mm-hmm.